I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, October 18th, 2022. Coming up, in light of the recent approval by the FDA for the over-the-counter sale of hearing aids starting this week, we present an encore feature of an interview with author David Owen about his book, Volume Control, Hearing in a Deafening World. We begin with some of the recent news in science. Medical professionals have long believed that if a person suffers from major depressive disorder, it's a permanent condition and needs to be treated that way. And brain imaging data has seemed to back that up. Brain images of someone with major depressive disorder have generally revealed a lower level of neural connections than in the typical brain. This has led to the long-held medical belief that the adult brain structure of someone with serious depression cannot be altered with treatment. Now, research in Germany challenges this long-held belief. Researchers at the University of Münster in Germany say that after just six weeks of inpatient treatment, the brains of people with major depression showed improved brain connectivity. What's more, the patients also seemed much less depressed. For their research, scientists studied 109 patients with major depressive disorder and compared them with 55 healthy controls. They used an MRI scanner to identify which areas of the patient's brains were communicating with other areas. They then used treatments ranging from electroshock therapy to antidepressant drugs to counseling or a combination of therapies. After six weeks of treatment, they scanned the patient's brains again. Scientists say the encouraging results went against previous expectations. The researchers hope that further investigations into how treatments can improve brain connectivity will lead to better and more lasting outcomes for people who suffer from major depressive disorder. For How on Earth, I'm Benita Lee. You might recall that back on September 26th, NASA intentionally smashed a spacecraft into an asteroid. That mission was called DART, which stands for Double Asteroid Redirection Test. It was a proof-of-concept test to see if we can divert the path of an asteroid by hitting it with the spacecraft. The target was called Dimorphos, which is a small moon of the asteroid Didymos. That moon, Dimorphos, is fairly small, about 170 meters or 560 feet in diameter, about the size and mass as the Great Pyramid of Giza. The test was a resounding success. As reported by NASA, prior to DART's impact, it took Dimorphos 11 hours and 55 minutes to orbit its larger parent asteroid Didymos. After DART's impact, astronomers have been using telescopes on Earth to measure how much that time has changed. Now the investigation team has confirmed the spacecraft's impact altered Dimorphos' orbit around Didymos by 32 minutes, shortening the 11-hour, 55-minute orbit to 11 hours and 23 minutes. 
That is more than 25 times greater than the minimum hoped-for change of 73 seconds. This marks humanity's first time purposely changing the motion of a celestial object and the first full-scale demonstration of asteroid deflection technology. If you had a little trouble hearing today's headlines, you may be one of many people with mild to moderate hearing loss. A recent announcement by the Food and Drug Administration will give you cause to celebrate. Starting this week, quality hearing aids became an over-the-counter product, making them much more affordable for the average consumer. Today, we replay an interview I recorded in 2020 with author David Owen about his book, Volume Control, in which he explored the surprising science of hearing and the remarkable technologies that can help us hear better. In the book, he argues that failing to take care of our hearing comes with a huge social cost. He demystifies the science of hearing while encouraging readers to get the treatment they need for hearing loss and protect the hearing they still have. Here's David Owen. Welcome to the show, David Owen. You just came out with a really fascinating new book, Volume Control, on the topic of hearing loss and what to do about it. But before we start talking about the book, I think you have a personal connection to the topic, and that's what got you interested. Is that right? Yes, it, uh, it is. It's part of what got me interested. I have uh, tinnitus, which is the, the kind of the phantom ringing uh, in the ears. It's not really in your ear. It's in your brain. Um, I had that for about 12 years, and I have a little bit. Of, I'm 65, so I have a little bit of hearing loss. And uh, my grandmother, but I always remembered her as having, you know, for as long as I knew her, she had terrible hearing problems because when she was uh, a teenager a century ago, a suitor took her duck hunting on a uh, on water near Austin, Texas, where she grew up, and steadied his shotgun by resting the barrel on her shoulder. Oh no! Uh, and when he fired, he not only missed the duck, but also really uh, seriously deafened her. And so, you know, almost every memory I have of her is of her, you know, not hearing what I was saying or adjusting her hearing aid or the terrible feedback, which she often couldn't hear. So, And there wasn't much to be done for it in her day. No, the, the hearing aid helped, but, uh, you know, her hearing got steadily worse. And uh, the, um, you know, she had peculiarities. She we talking to her on the phone. You had to shout, of course. And then... Um, she she said goodbye she hung she she ended phone calls just by hanging up you never knew when it was going to come and i think that was uh, possibly deafness related um so um but it's it's definitely uh it's definitely a, a big part of my memories of her right right well you start the book with an overview of the biology of the system and um i don't want to spend too much time on that but briefly for the listeners can you explain how do we hear things? It's kind of amazing that I, uh, an audiologist at the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary told me if you place, you know, stick one finger in your right ear, index finger, and then point the other index finger straight into your right eye, where those two lines meet is where your inner ear is. And it's tiny. Um, almost always in illustrations, it's magnified uh, so that you can see it. But the, the cochlea, the, the sort of the, the ears... Um, 
the critical element in this auditory infrastructure is just like a little bit larger than a miniature chocolate chip. It's just a tiny little thing. Uh, and it's incredibly delicate, incredibly sensitive, and yet, as is often the case with precious things, we don't take nearly enough care of it. Um, and as a consequence, we, we often uh, you know, damage our hearing. Um, I think that young people tend to think of hearing problems as an old people problem, and you're certainly more likely to see it in old people, but it's an old people problem that begins when we're young. Uh, most of the bad sound-related things that I did in my years, I did in my teens and 20s, and I think that's true of most people. Right, and we'll circle around back to this because there's some new research that you touch on at the end of the book that relates to this. But getting back to the hearing system itself, let's say, you know, when that gun went off on your grandmother's shoulder, and guns seem to be a really common cause of hearing loss in our society, what happens in that inner ear area that causes the hearing loss? Well, these tiny sensory cells inside the inner ear, way inside, very small, so small that that even with an electron microscope, they're hard to see. And they, uh, they're called hair cells, and I think people tend to picture them as just like the hair that sticks out of old men's ears, but they're much vastly tinier than that. And that when loud sounds can destroy them, sometimes temporarily, and it can also do damage to the, the sort of the, the nerve connections that those hair cells plug into. And uh, the, it doesn't always take a whole lot of exposure to cause those that kind of damage. And uh, you can lose, I, I believe it's, you know, you can lose 80% of your hair cells before the loss shows up in a standard hearing test if you go to your audiologist and have an audiogram made. Oh, that's amazing. Um, it is amazing. And we don't, <laughs> given how important this sense is, uh, we don't take nearly enough care of it. And I was intrigued to read, too, that we know, that is, science knows a lot more about how the visual system works than about how the auditory system works. That's true, and it's, um, it's, it's starting, people are starting to know a whole lot. One reason is it's a kind of an okay boomer reason. There's this huge uh, demographic bulge of <laughs> <Right>. people <laughs> who are my age who are having hearing problems, and so we're, uh, in addition to causing many of the world's problems, we're also an immense marketing force. And so there are lots of people interested in understanding what causes hearing loss, what might reverse it, uh, which until very recently has, hasn't even been a possibility, and then how to help people who have lost hearing to regain uh, some ability to to. Um, connect with other people. Yeah, so let's talk about that. That's a really exciting area that, uh, again, I knew nothing about. Some of these fixes, like, of course, I've seen the hearing aids, and, and some of my friends actually have the, the smaller miniature hearing aids. But what's going on, like, with cochlear implants? And I was amazed to read that those little tiny bones in the inner ear that help transmit sounds, just like a knee replacement, you can get replacements for those little tiny bones. Right, right. If, you, if the one kind of hearing loss... Uh, it's one kind of hearing loss. It act- actually can be corrected surgically. Uh, there are these th- the three smallest bones in the body are in the middle ear, and there are uh, various um, ailments that cause them to seize up or to otherwise uh, stop functioning. And they can actually, you know, you can do a, a, a little tiny, tiny Teflon pros- prosthetic that works just as well uh, as the bones that were there if you have that kind of hearing loss. And there are starting to be 
one thing that's been frustrating to hearing researchers for uh, for forever is that uh, mammals do not regenerate uh, hair cells, the hearing sensory cells. Uh, reptiles do, uh, but mammals don't. And um, But there are some indications now that researchers are finding ways to, uh, to um, stimulate uh, cells inside the inner ear to produce new hair cells and to produce them in the right places and with uh, performing the right functions. Uh, and if that turns out to be the case, there will be actually be, for the first time, uh, ways to reverse this kind of hearing loss, the sensoroneural hearing loss, the hearing loss caused by damage to the sensory cells or the nerve connections that they that they hook into. Yeah, that would be really exciting because it sounds like that's the source of most of the hearing loss that occurs in many of us because of our bad habits when we're young. Right. Most acquired hearing loss, the sort of life-related hearing loss, is, is caused by damaging those sensory cells. There are other kinds, too. There are people who are born deaf and that, that are a, a genetic problem. Or, a, or And there are also people, I have um, several friends who have undergone chemotherapy for cancer of one kind or another, and the standard chemotherapy drugs can cause hearing loss. Uh, uh, cancer uh, uh, doctors don't always tell patients that, that a potential consequence of their treatment is, is deafness or partial deafness. Uh, I think most cancer patients would view the the trade-off is a reasonable one, but they don't always know that it's coming. They're surprised that they, uh, you know, finish chemotherapy and then need hearing aids on both sides. Right. It would be nice to know that in advance. So what what kind of hearing loss is um, correctable with a cochlear implant? Cochlear implants are used in people who've, who've lost all or almost all of their, their hearing. And what a cochlear implant does, it's a, ti- it's a tiny wire that is threaded into this in- infinitesimally small uh, organ inside the head, and it conveys signals directly from a hearing aid-like device to the nerves, the auditory nerves inside the brain. So it bypasses all the uh, existing infrastructure of sound detection. It bypasses the eardrum and the little bones in the inner ear and, and the sensory cells in the cochlea, and it transmits signals, electric signals, directly to these nerves. Um, I think people who have not undergone uh, the surgery, will often assume that it just snaps back, it gives people perfect hearing, uh, but it doesn't. It's a, it's a, uh, it's, it's, it, it doesn't sound the way sound does to a hearing person, but it's an extraordinary uh, accomplishment, and it was described to me by uh, one surgeon as the, the most remarkable prosthetic device of a sense that's, that's ever been invented. Yeah, it sounds pretty amazing that just putting a wire in there can, can actually substitute for that remarkably complicated system that feeds into the ear, feeds into the yeah, brain, rather. And, and not everybody has, a, has the, the sort of the, you know, the auditory infrastructure that can, that can accommodate it. Uh, maybe the nerves are too, too small or there's been other damage. But for many people, it's life-changing for people who, whom it does work for. And I, I, I went to an appointment uh, with an audiologist of a woman. She was going back for her one-week checkup after having her cochlear implant turned on. And she had a super powerful hearing aid on one side and uh, the implant on the other side. And um, even though she was very hearing impaired, I never would have known that she had a hearing problem if I hadn't known why we were both there. Right, right. Well, I'm glad you mentioned hearing aids because that was my next question. And I have to say, I learned so much about hearing aids. The technology is 
really amazing, and it's getting better and better all the time. So can you explain the new technology to us, How what, what these little devices in your ears are doing? They're, uh, they, uh, they increase the, the gain. They increase the volume of sounds in particular frequencies, and they adjust them in different ways. Uh, so they tend to amplify soft sounds more than loud ones, and they, as they should. And they, there are some frequencies that they aren't good at um, uh, increasing it. But they, they make it possible for people to hear better um, if they have uh, partial hearing loss. And the people are often, I think the, um, there's a, you hear many stories of somebody who gets hearing aids and then puts them in a drawer and never takes them out again because they feel frustrated with them when they start. You, you ha- when you get hearing aids, you have to retrain your brain. It's a new way of hearing. Uh, I have glasses. I've had glasses since I was a kid. And when I first put them on, it was, it was you know, transformative. I could see things that I hadn't been able to see. Hearing aids is different. You know, if you've, if you've lost the ability to hear sounds in certain frequencies, you, you never get that back. But you can you can increase your ability to hear what you can still hear, and then you can train your brain to uh, draw information from the, these new signals that it's getting. So for for some of us that, like you, are just getting older, and we haven't really, we don't have this damage to the ear that causes hearing loss, but we are, we're gradually losing the ability to hear certain frequencies. It sounds like there's new technology that isn't exactly a hearing aid, but more of um, an amplification device that can be worn internally. And that was, I had never heard of any of these things. So could you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, sure. And, and a hearing aid is an amplification device. I have a pair of headphones made by Bose. They're called Hearphones. And I control them with an app on my phone. They let me, uh, they're like Bose's um, noise-canceling headphones. I can make loud places quieter. But I can also use them to make quiet places louder. And I can adjust, um, adjust, the, the the gain and the the canceling to make the hearing uh, work better, and they're especially useful in in a place where many older people have difficulties and younger people too. And, uh, the example people always give is restaurants. Uh, it's hard to hear in, in crowded restaurants, uh, and it's because there are lots of people talking. You can't um, draw out and isolate the sounds that you want to hear, and uh, these help you do it. Um, and and they have. The same processor that's in hearing aids, uh, but they have a bigger battery, which supports um, more robust, a more robust version of Bluetooth, and they have bigger speakers and uh, bigger microphones. So the sound quality, I have found, uh, and many people find, is superior to uh, what their hearing aids give. The, the downside is that they're big. You know, no, nobody doesn't know you're, you're wearing them. Uh, and for some people, many people, that's a big problem. Uh, I think it's it's beginning to be less of a problem. I mean, you walk down the street, everybody has something sticking out of their right, ears. People wearing right. headphones or their AirPods or or whatever. So I think the um, the stigma that has always been attached uh, to having hearing aids is probably uh, it's it's at least weaker than it used to be. Yeah, and the price is definitely a huge differential. And it sounds like. Basically, with these new devices like the Bose earphones, the user is doing the adjustments via, say, an app on their phone, their smartphone, as opposed to an audiologist. And it's really that cost of uh, personalization that drives the hearing aid cost into the thousands of dollars. 
It is. The, there's always been a very cozy uh, economic relationship between the big, the six big hearing aid manufacturers and audiologists. And much of the price of a, uh, of a hearing aid uh, is goes to the audiologist. And when hearing aid c- companies talk about their customers, they're not talking about people who wear hearing aids. They're talking about people who sell them. And so if for a long time it has been possible, it would have been possible to give hearing aid wearers total control over their, uh, you know, how their uh, hearing aids sound. And, um, but it hasn't, uh, it hasn't been done. The hearing aid companies have resisted it and the audiologists have resisted it. But that's, that's all beginning to change. And uh, because it's changing, it's the kind of thing that's going to be uh, probably pretty confusing for a while. I mean, you're beginning to see many more advertisements for uh, hearing devices, hearing improvement devices. Uh, not all of them are much less expensive than conventional hearing aids. Uh, some of them are, so, are sort of too much uh, less expensive than conventional hearing aids to the point where you, you wonder how good they can possibly be. But I think that the the upshot eventually will be a much more rational market for hearing aids and for hearing treatment and for hearing improvement devices of all kinds. And the uh, one result of that may be that, uh, you know, hearing aids will be more likely to be covered by health insurance policies or by Medicare, which they're mostly not now. Right. Yeah, we can only hope so. So one other really intriguing aspect of your book was um, your coverage of the deaf culture. And again, that was really fascinating to me and something I didn't know much about. And I'm curious, have you had much of a response from that culture to your book? Uh, You know, I I went to visit, I live in Connecticut, and about an hour away from where I live is the American School for the Deaf, which was the the first uh, deaf education institution in the United States and is the place where American Sign Language was developed. Uh, And uh, it was fascinating. It was completely fascinating. I heard from them. They were pleased with what I'd written. But I'm not sure about what the reaction is. Uh, There's some very sensitive issues among the deaf, the the so-called capital D deaf, uh, who are people for whom the inability to hear is more nearly a cultural uh, uh, a cultural element in their lives than uh, a than a medical one that uh, these are people who communicate by sign language and um, uh, I think one thing that's that sort of turned that it's introduced complexity into that world is the availability of cochlear implants and now you can uh, you can uh, you can implant a child as young as six months old uh, and give them some usable hearing, and especially at that age, they have, their brain has the, uh, uh, enough plasticity uh, to really learn how to hear, uh, to process sound really well. And it's, uh, you know, it's something I don't even feel qualified to talk about because there's, there's so many people who have uh, sensitivities about it that um, I think it's hard not to offend somebody, no matter what you say. Right, and I certainly don't want to do that, but I do have to say it was a fascinating coverage in the book about the history of teaching um, sign language and communicating with the deaf, and it was a much more nuanced and complex history than I'd ever imagined. I mean, just for instance, your story of the um, community at Martha's Vineyard or near Martha's Vineyard that um, consisted of a high number of deaf people, and they developed their own way of communicating. They did. And uh, my wife and I have gone to the vineyard. I've gone for 45 years, 45 summers, and she's gone for, you know, 55. 
And I never knew, in the Chilmark itself, this town where this existed, and I never knew about it. But there was a, a high incidence of uh, hereditary deafness in this small, isolated community, and uh, like 4% of the population. And uh, because every family was affected, uh, people just accommodated it. It wasn't viewed as a handicap. They developed a form of sign language. Uh, even hearing, even um, hearing people uh, would often communicate uh, with one another through sign language. If there was no one deaf present, you could tell a dirty joke. Uh, <laughs> sign language fishermen could communicate from one boat to another. So it was. Um, there were no activities from which the deaf were excluded and no uh, activities that were conducted exclusively for the deaf. And so it was just, you know, it was a fact of life, like hair color. Right, uh, right. And people didn't necessarily even later remember who had been deaf and who had not. So there was a story of a woman who said she was describing a, a fierce argument that she'd had with, with a neighbor. And uh, then she, she paused and said, come to think of it, you know, we were probably arguing in sign language. <laughs> That's a great story. Well, sadly, we are running out of time, and there's so much more interesting stuff in the book, so I will link to the book on our website. And thank you so much for talking to us today, David. Oh, thank you. That was author David Owen talking about his book, Volume Control, an exploration of the science of hearing and the technological fixes that can restore its loss. The topic takes on new relevance given the FDA's reassignment of hearing aids to the -the over-the-counter market. We'll provide links to the book and a recent New York Times piece on the new situation in the hearing aid market in the show notes on the How on Earth website. For How on Earth, I'm Beth Bennett. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced by yours truly, Joel Parker. Contributions by Beth Bennett, Shelley Schlender, and Benita Lee. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from They Might Be Giants. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, And you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.